Hi, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey, Cool Job. Today's guest is Joel Kim Booster, comedian, writer, and the executive producer of an upcoming TV show based on his life called Birthright. I can't wait to watch it. Plus, he's got a Comedy Central special on October 20th at midnight that we all must support because Joel is not only Asian, but Korean. Joel Kim Booster. <laughs> that was good. That was, right on, right on, that right was great. Hello. Hi, hi, hi. So um, your Comedy Central special is coming out. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Were you not, going back to our conversation, were you not to have a television, where would one watch this? Uh, I believe it's stre- it'll stream on the Comedy Central app the next day, which it, is just what they call the website. And is the- that Garden Walled? I don't think so. Oh, okay. No, at least not for the for a while because they know that midnight is a dumb time to air something. So I think <laughs> it'll be available for the masses. Okay, good. And if not, just DM me on Twitter and uh, I'll give you my friend's mom's cable password, which is what I use. Perfect. So perfect. Everyone will be able to watch it if if I have anything to say about it. Excellent. So, I mean, yeah, and midnight tends to be a thirsty time, so I can't imagine why they would wall that Well, it is, and it's, but also, it's a teen time. That's the thing. I Mm. mean, that's when I watched Comedy Central Presents when I was growing up, was around that time, because I was a super cool kid uh, (laughs) in in my house at at midnight on a Friday night. So I think that's what they bank on mostly, because they know that the mille- the the mills the millennials yeah, yeah, yeah. will watch online and then real teens will watch maybe you know I love hashtag alone. real teens yeah. as like a thing. <laughs> um, so you're also wearing a massive t-shirt like a Tagami yeah, t-shirt, I did. I, which I love. I sent out the call on Twitter. I said I wanted to wear a queer Asian artist, which is like such a hot, like a tall order. I think I, I just sort of did it because I, I knew I wanted to wear either someone who was Asian or someone who was queer, or preferably both. And mm. then they reached out to me and Perfect. said, we'd love to send you a thousand shirts. And they did. And they laced you. Exactly. And I was so I wanted to wear that one specifically because it's hella gay it's hella gay it's it's it just felt very on brand for me and i think it represented to got me really well and massive the brand really well and they specifically said when they were prepping us to, uh to bring wardrobe they were like no white shirts nothing like extremely graphic and of course i brought a white shirt that was extremely graphic um not like content, not like it was like too explicit, Mm-mm. but just like sort of there's a lot going on. And I begged, I said, I'm so sorry. I This is the only shirt I brought. <laughs> You're like, it's Tagama or nipples. Choose you one. have yeah. to. And luckily the director was super cool and I think had a little crush on me. So he made it work for me. Oh, hero freeze. Yeah, exactly. Well, actually, Anne Ishii, the founder of Massive, has been on this very oh, no way. I'm yeah. a big Anne fan. Oh, me Anne too. Anne Stan. I'm an Anne Stan. <laughs> We're dorks. Um, so where did you tape it and how did that whole thing feel? We taped it in New Orleans. Um, all of all the whole group of whatever, like 14 of us taped in New Orleans together. And it was sort of segmented into two shows a night, two comics per show. So we were paired up with somebody. And then I don't know, it was huge. It was in this gigantic amphitheater in New Orleans, which is much a much larger space than I think any of us are used to performing. It in. sounds so, like the Hunger Games. Weirdly. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was. And it, honestly, it looked like you'll the, the stage, the set design is like a Grecian 
Venetian sort of like altar uh, almost. It's very strange, uh, but very cool. I mean, it was so cool to perform on it. But it is like going from being like playing JV to playing in the mm. major leagues suddenly, you know, for your life. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so it is. It's a little scary because a lot of stuff that I do is is definitely like. My career as a stand-up has been built in smaller spaces. Mm. I mean, intimate, I, I tour we call it, intimate, I think, yeah, yeah, totally. But when I was coming up in New York, I was performing in the backs of bars, in the basements of bars, in the attics of bars. You know, I wasn't performing in gigantic theaters, bases like that. So it was a little. Ner- I was a little nervous because I wasn't sure. Ex- it's a different thing. It's a different vibe to perform for an audience in that kind of crowd. So I was a little scared, but you know, I think it went well. And they let me do. They let me play with a lot of stuff. Like I was like, can I still do crowd work? Because that's a huge part of my act of just like chatting with people and sort of improvising based on what they say. And it's television, but they still let me do it. I have no idea if any of it will make it into the final cut because they do not show us. They did not show us any of it. Oh, that's uh, actually legitimately terrifying. It is very scary. Huh. <laughs> so the, you're like what when you guys see it, all of you, every single one of you listening who is going to watch the special on October 20th at midnight, which when you watch it, I'll be watching it for the first time, too. Wow. <laughs> how fantastic. traumatizing. Did, yeah, it, it, it's it's a it's called a half hour special, but it's technically closer to 22 minutes, obviously, because of commercials right. and whatnot. And I recorded 38 minutes of material. So. They have a lot to choose from in terms of what they cut and what they don't. And I, they did let us email the the week after to say, is there anything you absolutely don't want, or do you have any preferences for stuff that you do want? So I do, I do know some stuff that's going to get cut, but I don't know if they're going to listen to my wishes at yeah, all. They might just lull you into a false sense Truly. of security without an email <laughs> yeah. process. So a large part of your set leads with your identity. Yes, and the glaringly obvious aspect of you, which is, you know, just obvious, is that you're really handsome. (laughs) (laughs) You bitch. I mean, like, what is it like to be life-ruiningly attractive? Uh, I wouldn't know, honestly, (laughs) Mary. uh, You should know. You should tell the audience about that. I don't know anything about that. Um, Yeah, it's weird to be... um, this attractive as an Asian person in uh, the media right now, because I don't think we're told that a lot. So I think it's good to, you know, sort of reinforce that on this podcast mm. that I am hot. And it's it is actually it's so funny now as I move into like this new segment of my career and I'm building new material. It is it has become sort of like an undercurrent reoccurring bit in my stand-up of just re- like saying on stage like oh i identify as a hot comedian first and an asian comedian second and a gay comedian third like there's layers but I the, think the, 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 the first one that you should know is that i'm hot totally but you are incongruously attractive you which is i mean i mean the whole thing is that your name doesn't quote match your face yes tell us about your fascinating backstory I, well, I don't know if it's that fascinating. It actually I mean, feels it's... quite common in this. Like for, um, I just feel like there's so many of us out there. But I'm adopted uh, from Korea. My parents are white evangelicals in the Midwest. Right, out, it was raised right outside of Chicago, and I was homeschooled <laughs> growing up. And I am gay, and that is sort of uh, the package that I present to the audience, at least in this first outing with my special. And then uh, can't believe you forgot to plug this, but also my album coming out uh, soon after the <laughs> special, <laughs> uh, two weeks after Model Minority is the title of the album. Please, oh, nice. Uh, pre-order on iTunes. And yeah, so that is just like sort of the, the soup of identity that I'm dealing with and I'm navigating sort of every day trying to figure 
out like how it all intersects. Right. So the bone broth, if you will. Exactly. So, I mean, what did you eat growing up? Like you were like of German descent. Uh, yeah, in, my like, dad's Plainfield, uh, yes, Illinois. Plainfield, Illinois. Okay. Yeah, my uh, my dad's grandparents, I believe, are like first gen German. Oh wow. Uh, or my my dad's my grandparents my dad's mm. parents are first gen and yeah i don't know growing up it was just like midwestern food like truly hot dogs cut into macaroni and blue box macaroni and cheese there was there was a period when my dad was laid off and like god bless my parents because they made it work and i did not even know that half the shit i was eating was poor people food until i <laughs> was much older we we ate this thing called shit on uh shingle like three times a week, there was one year where we, and I loved it. And it's just white bread toast and then like a bechamel sauce, which is a fancy name for like a cream and flour sauce. Mm, butter, gravy. Uh, with budding beef, like lunch meat, just like torn up and thrown into the cream sauce and then just served over. And I, it was my favorite meal. Oh, wow. That sounds delicious. Legitimately. It really is. But question, lactose intolerance, nature or nurture? That's definitely nature. Okay. Got it. It's a real thing for me. (laughs) You're one of ours. And I didn't (laughs) accept it until like really much later in my life. But I was like, it's normal to get cramps after eating ice cream. Mm, You're just crippling, (laughs) really flatulent cramps. Having a full day of just pain and anguish and, and (laughs) humiliating myself with gas. No, I was, um, given lactose intolerance on my 30th birthday no. to add to all the other indignities. You're 30? <laughs> I mean, I just turned 30. No, I'm a trillion years older than you 30. However. Insanely young. Thanks. I'll take it. Um, so the thing is, though, at 16, junior year, mm-hmm. you were homeschooled by religious parents up until this point, mm-hmm. And then you went to high school. Public school. Yeah. And this was like your rumspringa. Yes, exactly. It, within a month of, of going to public school, I drank for the first time, smoked weed for the first time and came flying out of the closet. So truly all of their worst fears came uh, to fruition in that month. Because I, and the thing is, is had they sent me in the third grade, like I asked, I think things would have turned out much differently for me. I might still be in the closet at this point. Mm. I mean, thank God they didn't listen to me and things turned out the way they did. But there is a good chance that I would have it would have been sort of a, a slower burn towards uh, the life of sin that I'm currently living in. Right. Not just like a full fledged ignition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like... and you just can't keep someone that, you know, it's just like shaking up a, a fucking soda can for 16 years right, and then right. opening it up. You know, just really pent up everything. I wanted to try everything. I wanted to do everything. And it wasn't great. I mean, it wasn't the way I would have probably wanted to experience a lot of those things Mm, for the first time. But that being said, I was also, you know, getting good grades was involved in all the clubs and and musicals and plays and things like that and doing really well in school. So I was just doing what normal kids do, I think. And my parents freaked out when they found out all of the shenanigans that I was getting into. Well, of course, because like, you know, similarly, they weren't building up a tolerance to like shenanigans. So they also just got that like ripping sort of. They they wouldn't even let me get my driver's license until I turned 18 and, and sort of like got it myself and then that year also the year uh that they found out all of this shit because they read my journal etc i bought a car from my friend for 500 dollars and did not tell them and <gasps> parked it down the street from the house because he didn't want me to have a car 
So I parked it down the street and it was, it was like two weeks in. I happened to be leaving for school at the same time as my dad was leaving for work. And I drove past my dad Shut up! and he saw me in the car. And that was a conversation when we got home. But my parents sort of, uh, I had to trick them into these things, like doing it on my own. But once I did, they sort of like, well, I guess we should get insurance for your car. Wow. So they were, they what weren't monsters. What kind of monsters. car was it? This is not It was the a point, 1988 but... Honda Accord. <laughs> And it was a stick shift, which I did not know how to drive. I had not. And the girl that I bought it from, my friend Angie Witt, taught me, gave me one lesson in the parking lot uh, after school and then sort of sent me on my way. And boy, did it take a full week before I really learned how to drive that godforsaken car. But But I miss it. But you also like really fucking wanted to drive that car. Oh, I absolutely did. And it lasted. And to its credit, it lasted a full year before it really conked out for good hell yeah how did you wrestle at five hundred dollars oh i've been working since i was 14 what like, are some of the jobs that you had my early first on? job was at the plainfield public library still one of my Dork. cherished uh <laughs> memories i'd been volunteering at the library since i had been 12 too so i was an uber nerd but anything to get out of the house and i i love to read so yeah the library was the first gig and then i worked at a dip and dot stand in the mall for three days when and then i was unceremoniously let go from that position because the owner of the dip and dot stand unbeknownst to all of us was uh hiding out at the verizon store caddy corner to the stand spying on us all day and she noticed that Whilst there was no customers, I was not keeping busy in the stand. And there's only so much you can do. We're doing it fucking dipping dots. So I got fired, but then I got a job quickly after that at the Cold Stone Creamery in my town, which was a real step up for me in terms of the ice cream game. That and and also diesel forearms. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like Cold Stone is no joke. Oh, yes, yes, yes. It was a a real... experience working there it was a real cutthroat competitive <laughs> um moment in in time and also that is primarily why i um ended up going to public school because i met all these kids that were involved in the theater program at the local high school because cold stone went there and like poached all of the high school kids and were like if you like musical theater you're gonna love singing about ice cream oh my god that's so freaking smart Coldstone. they didn't have job interviews they had auditions and you shut, had to like come in up. and sing a song yeah it what was, did you sing i don't know oh, i can't remember what i sang i think i sang like a michelle branch song or something hell yeah something along those lines um and then yeah you just had to prove you could carry a tune it was all for show it was all to make the job seem cooler than it was right because i don't think they're auditioning people at the cold stone in times square in new york city <laughs> i don't think send a headshot they, they're not uh i don't think they're even singing when you tip them at the cold stone in, in times square shockingly but yeah no that was a big moment for me because i met like a bunch of other kids and met a lot of other gay kids for the first time and that was when i really went full court press and was like you have to send me to school i have to live my dreams and perform at at the public high school level so (laughs) they did and they broke down and they let me do it so thank god for cold stone and then i got fired from cold stone too because i called my manager stephanie hook a mormon 19 year old who managed the place who was married to a man much older than her uh 
I called her a bitch while I was cleaning dishes to I someone else. I thought your else. story was that you called her a Mormon. <laughs> no, I wish uh, we all called her a Mormon, but she was in the office and uh-huh. I didn't know she heard. And she called oh, me and she's shit. like, I heard what you said. I have to let you go. And that was devastating. So then I got a job at the Quiznos behind the Cold Stone. Oh, at that's the strip mall bitter, though. The that's Stone, really bitter. Which is a real step yeah, down that in really status, is. In, in, in pay and everything. It was a real step down for me. But... I worked at that Cold Stone for a long time, and then I, or that Quiznos, and then I worked at Family Video, it, one of the last remaining video rental chains. It still exists, largely because it rents porn, the huge <laughs> porn section. And there's weirdly in the like the the Bible of Family Video when you get hired, there is a section that's like, how can you be called, be called Family Video if there's right, 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 a right. giant porn section? And their answer was like, yeah, well, we cater to every member of the family. Hell yeah, sex positive. <laughs> yeah, totally. So, yeah, like, and I worked there family. for like three years, uh, three or four years. Wow, that's into major. Into college. I transferred to a family video near my college. Wow. And then they fired me as well. I got fired a lot. Huh. They fired me four years, almost four years into working for them because I rented Rachel Getting Married without paying for it and it was a dollar rental at the time and this was something that everyone did at this family video but i happened to be working with the lamest virgin alive i can't even remember his name and he narked on me um even and even though this was just like something we had all been used to doing and he, but he you know saw a rule being broken and he had to say something and i got fired i got let go it says a lot that you can't remember his name because you, up to now it's been very high school where it's been the first name yeah. last name of everyone you've ever worked with um so you had your big like you know crazy moment do you ever look back on your decision making at the time and think oh my god it's kind of a miracle i'm still alive no yeah, I mean, kind of. I, think I mean, or, or was it still relatively contained? Now, when you're saying crazy decision, you mean to like move out of my house and stuff well, like that? Well, no, I mean, just to like, you know, drugs and drinking without oh. any sort of pedigree in it. No, I, it felt, everything felt small in my town because mm. it was a suburb. It was, you know, everything felt safe. There was really nothing bad going on. None of us were driving or doing anything outrageous. It didn't feel like the OC, which is what we all wanted it right, to feel right, like. Right. I think every teenager growing up in you know 2005 wanted their lives to feel a little bit like the OC. But no, it just felt um, it felt sort of it, it it felt like it had always been in me in a weird way. It felt like and it just an extension of of every other thing that I had been repressing in my life, because that is, I always wanted to be just a regular teen. I I had always had this obsession with being normal, quote unquote. Um, And not in like a strict, like a, I don't, I don't even know what I mean by that, but just sort of like experiencing being a teenager in the way I saw it being experienced on television, because I'd been homeschooled for so long. So my only outlet and my only window into how life was sort of on the outside world was through television and books. And to a lesser extent, the internet, the internet was less of a thing back then, but you know, and so I just wanted to be doing, you know, I wanted to be living the life that Lucy was on Seventh Heaven, you know, Right. (laughs) I wanted to have my moment. Well, did you, were you like saving up all these like different kind of like click personalities? You're like, I'm going to be goth or I'm going to be whatever. Like by the time you like hit school. Yeah, I I definitely had a a lot of different sort of phases. I, I would say like 
they were like perfectly encapsulated by like a goth or something like that. But I definitely had a sort of, I'm an alt kid, you know, I shop at thrift stores and I wear my belts to the side, my studded belts (laughs) to the side. And so I was not, but it was weird because my high school, it was almost disappointing in a way because I, and I don't know if this was your experience either, but there weren't really clicks in any certain, any specific way. Like you expect there to be from watching Mean Girls. Like there was none. Mm. There was no Mean Girls experience. Oh my when God. You were I like, went to a school with 4,000 kids in Texas. And I, that was after I transferred from a private school in Hong Kong that was oh, British. So like I used to wear a uniform that had a tie and then I went to a school with 4,000 kids with buses that would tran- like move you around the campus oh, and metal detectors. That's so there, there were hella clicks. Wild. <laughs> no, I guess my school, I mean, my school was like 2,400 students. Mm. So it wasn't small, but it was, I don't know. Like, there, like I just remember everyone sort of had, there were definitely like groups of kids that were friends, but they all like sort of had a diversity of interests and oh, styles nice. and things like that. And I couldn't, you couldn't exactly pinpoint who was quote unquote more popular because in, from my perspective, there were kids that were like popular in the choir theater sort of realm of things. And then there were kids that were just sort of generally, well, I don't know. I, I didn't feel, I didn't have bullies. I didn't have, you know, people, sort of judging you for your decisions or like sort of looking down like this the whole school was forced to watch the speech team the forensics team present in their different categories so like the whole school had to show up at some point because i believe like we all had one half period of study hall and in that half period of study hall one day they had to show up to the auditorium and watch some girl read poetry and me and my friend Lindsay do a dramatic scene from an anna quinlan book you know it was it was insane and people would be like great job you know like oh that's so yeah hunky door you were expecting like more blood sports yeah i wanted i wanted the clueless mean girls heathers you know what have you You're experienced. like, I would have and won and it would have been so yeah, sweet. Yeah. I, I would have loved to have like played the victim of like being bullied. I mean, and granted, the, there were kids that weren't always super nice to me. I would say my biggest bully, though, was gay <laughs> by high school. Really? Yeah, we dated for a week and then I broke up with him and then he got really mean. Happens. Bye Bye Birdie rehearsals were hell. <laughs> It's a classic tale. Yeah, tale exactly. as old as time. So what books and TV kind of held you down during that time? Oh, God. What was I watching during that time? Um, Dashboard Confessional. Oh, big, of course. Big, yeah. big revelation for me. Someone who got my feelings? Finally. Um, I also remember Blake Miller gave me a burned copy of Transatlanticism by Death Cab for Cutie. And that actually... An, and I still think it's a good, it's a good album. I feel like it's I can record. picture I think your hair. <laughs> <laughs> but it definitely, it that held me, like that introduced me to quote unquote indie music in a mm. way that I got really into back then. I was like into all the like sort of Panic at the Disco, Taking Back Sunday, that I sort of I love that moment. it's Panic at yeah. the Disco. <laughs> panic at the Disco, the original mother. Yeah. Um, True. Exactly. Darren Aronofsky, a big Panic at the Disco fan. Uh, and I was super, in, I got really, really into musical theater too. Okay, yeah, it's by the sounds of it. Yeah, yeah so Not I was listening cast, to but... a lot of Rent, a lot of Last Five Years, mm. big uh, Wicked fan. Um, <laughs> I was 
I was a little. Sh- I actually I was really really big into the Little Shop fours, and I got to play Seymour my senior year. Oh so wow, that's that a, a pretty huge big role. For yeah, me. totally. Yeah. Um, so I heard on a podcast that your dad is a dude who breaks in tractors. Yeah. Like, I mean, that is like a corn-fed specificity. It really is. I mean, my dad straight up grew up on a, like a real working farm, like fields, corn, and cattle, and the whole nine yards. And um, he is deeply disappointed in me. <laughs> I mean, is he, though? No, I don't I mean, actually Because you're winning know. now. Yeah, but my parents aren't super curious about what I do for a living anymore. I think they sort of know that it would end up in a either a fight or... They, they don't want to hear about the kind of stuff that I'm talking about in my sets. And I think they know well enough to know that. So they don't, I, I don't think they've seen any of my televised stand up. They, they barely, I did a lot of plays in Chicago and uh, like, oh, like truly like dozens and dozens of plays in Chicago and many in college that they never came to, which I, and, and it's, it sounds so shitty of them, but I, I've, I don't, I never really invited them to any of them either. So it is just we have a really good understanding and we're at a really good level now. And I think trying to introduce them or force them into watching my work would probably cause more turmoil than uh, healing by any means. I think it's there's good that there's some distance there, especially because they are often the subject of my work. So right, right, I right. I don't need them. I don't need to explain to them, too, because here's the thing, like. I love my parents and I love my mom, especially I think my mom gets the brunt of it in a lot of my acts. Um, and I think it's very clear that I, I, I know that it's very clear that I love my mom, even from my act. But I also hope that people understand that the mom that I present in my acts is not necessarily my real mom. You right. Know? It's hyperbolic. It's a hyperbolic. Yeah. It's a very I'm like p- cherry picking aspects of her personality. Like I give her this crazy like uh foghorn leghorn southern accent because <laughs> i do like her family is from the south and my mom grew up in parts of the south she also grew up in puerto rico for a time you know i don't mm. talk about that um and she certainly doesn't have an accent anymore she sounds like a normal midwestern woman at this point but it's so funny to me when people expect that to be the like right 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 it's just so wild and it also here's another thing i so i read all the youtube comments of my conan sets and things well like actually that. that's a funny thing you you were like complaining about that and i was like looking and <laughs> they're good actually they're no i mean literally positive. i have some printed out um i don't like most male comics but i like this guy <laughs> this dude talks similar to amy schumer george takei is looking good for his oh, age brother. i know funny for sure but anyone else think he's hot as hell and i personally have the theory that you were directing attention to it as if you ha- didn't have enough <laughs> glory from having killed on your set you're like read all this no i i mean there you gotta there's a lot there's there's many of them but there's and also facebook i think is where they're worse I if mean, you find the, yeah. the the team coco facebook page or whatever where they share it they they reshare it a couple of times too and it's always a nightmare for me because i just have to read what everybody's saying and for some reason it's flipped on youtube they're mostly fine and then on facebook is where they're really brutal and there are a couple of comments on the Facebook comments where like old ladies are like, he sounds so ungrateful to his parents. Who ungrateful. Him. Yeah. Which is, it, those are truly the only comments that really bother me and make me mad in a way. And not because I, I really care what these people think, but that is an attitude that I've faced as an, an adoptee for a, a large share of my life of people being like, aren't you so grateful that you ended right. up blah, blah, blah. And it's as like, if it's like the, the white man's burden. It's like such yeah. an old school, old timey, like, oh, missionaries type yeah. fucking shit. Like, it's so fucked up as though I have to 
uh, I have like my relationship should be any different to them than my brother and my sister who are biological. Right. Like you should be indentured somehow. Yeah. It's just such a weird angle to take on it. And it does make me mad, especially because well, I love my mom. Sure. <laughs> I no, I mean, and for I anyone too. to question that is so outrageous to me, even I, though I am, you know, making I'm p- making fun of my mom a lot. Myself, well, but. you are. I think it's called healing. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Um. So you did have this incredible set on Conan last June, and by December you had a TV show. So that's how it works, right? You do Conan, <laughs> and then you have a TV show. Uh, the TV show is actually in development before I did Conan. Oh, um, I've been. It's almost. It'll almost be like, God, oof, um, it'll be two years in March uh, if the show is not yet picked up. That it's, it will be still in development. But yeah, it, it was a long process mm. and i still don't know i don't have a premiere date for it yet which is That's frustrating legit as every tv yeah. show like i know so many people who are working on tv shows with like really like impressive people and it's like they're just in development hell it took it's array like three years to make insecure so right. i no, feel totally. pretty good that i'm only about a year in with an actual network <laughs> right now so and i've switched networks too it's like a whole thing what network I mean, is it at right now well, i don't know if i can say oh, it's a ca- it's right. a it's a great cable network that i'm very excited to be working with at this stage in the process but i sort of missed the, the the their press release when they batch out all the shows that they've picked up for mm. development i missed that deadline so they are not going to say anything about it in, until it's either picked up or maybe not picked up and then they won't ever say anything about it so well i'm not going to make you suffer through my guessing because that makes it <laughs> the list quite short to be frank but um so i'll tell you off off perfect uh, mike so i read your blog or i read your blog and it's called i hate joel kim and you kind of disgorge all your thoughts and insecurities yeah, it's been a minute onto since I've it. Written on there, but. but there's this one interesting thing that I I find. Um, I was about to say there's one interesting thing I find interesting. This thing resonated with me, which is sort of um, about your gay comic baggage. Mm. And there's a quote that I shall read: "You are not white. You are not straight. You were not forged in the fires of Chicago open mics for ten years before the industry took notice of you. In fact, they only want you because you're a minority, not because you're funny or original or groundbreaking or alt or cool." Unpack that. Did for I write me. that? Um, yeah, that's like, that's like, your, you were saying that was like your kind of like internal monologue wow. when you're thinking about, yeah, it's, it's such, it's all such a double edged sword because here's the thing is that I, uh, was born into a point of view that is not well represented in comedy right now. And by virtue of that, I stand out amongst a sea of, you know, uh, Louis C.K.'s and and Bill Burr's, et cetera. Um, and so because of that, you know, the industry is going to take notice of me uh, a little bit sooner, maybe than somebody else who might have to wait around a little bit longer for their voice to sharpen or whatnot. But uh, on the other, the flip side of that is I will never be given credit for my successes in the same way that somebody else will. And I also, my big thing, my sticking point is, is there are a lot of comics working right now that it, within the industry, we sort of, the, the question is always asked, like, how did they get that? How did they book that show? How did they get this late night set, et cetera? And I will never be given the benefit of that question because we'll all sit around and talk shit about X, you know, straight white comedian or ex you know even black uh straight comedian Mm. or uh white 
girl comedian. And the the question is always asked of like, how did they get that? Because they're bad and we collectively sort of think they're bad. But for me, I know that if they're having that conversation, it's not even a question that's being asked. It's, we jump immediately to the answer of, oh, he got that because he's gay or he got that because he's Asian or he got that because he's gay and Asian and not because I, you know, worked my ass off to get where I am and develop and write and all that. But I mean, the flip side is also true though, because there, you know, there's this kind of resounding expectation that like all quote real comics are like these acerbic wits who Mm -hmm. like, you know, break bread with Judd Apatow for the high holidays, like with their Semitic good looks. Like (laughs) there's also like, you know, other things at play. Yeah. I, I, two, I, uh, the other thing is, is that I feel, um, the need to prove myself over and over again because I am everything that I do is pathologized as a uh, as a both a gay person and as a an Asian person. You know, it's just like oh, you know, all Asian comics talk about X, all gay comics talk about X, and so when I if I want to talk about the experience of being mistaken as another Asian person or X, Y, and Z, like I am so aware that every comic in the room's ears are sort of peeking up and ready to jump on me and say. Uh, well, we've heard that before, you know, and mm. I, ha- I as a white man, have to come up with a completely original take on jerking off, you know. It's I like, know, like cis white male hegemony is so hard. It's so hard. It's it's so annoying that I even think about it because at the end of the day, I don't really care. I think my work speaks for itself, and it's funny. And I'm I travel around the goddamn country making people laugh, and there are audiences, you know, that aren't you know alt Brooklyn, you know, white guilt hipsters that mm. I'm making laugh too. I'm making a lot of, you know, fucking weirdos in North Carolina laugh too. So I think it's, it's, it's broad in its specificity as well. It well, yeah, you say the words catty corner. So that <laughs> automatically makes you really, really regional. Um, is there an Asian people aren't funny thing in the same way that like there's a women aren't funny thing? Is there like a grand tradition of shitting on Asians for not being funny? I'm not sure. I, I almost feel like it's less about like a, a, a specific aggression towards Asian comics and more about our, our non-presence, our invisibility in mm-hmm. it. it. It is. And I think it's of our own making. I think it's of not demanding more. Right. You know, I, it's the, I think it's outrageous that SNL has gone however many years without casting an Asian American person just because you know because there are fun like can you believe mad tv beat them to that punch yeah totally it's it's but mad tv was kind of like prescient with a lot of different i mean we'll forgive mrs fucking (laughs) swan the nail technician or whatever the fuck we can talk off mic about that too because i don't know maybe i love it but (laughs) here's my thing I, i was talking about this recently in that mad tv is sort of more racialized in its humor sort of in general than SNL has ever sort of gestured at. I mean, look at how long it took them to cast a black woman in the cast. They don't want to do sketches about race. They Mm. don't want to do it. And so I think in that way, they've sort of absolved themselves from having to cast anybody like that because they're like, well, we don't do, we don't talk about race. Well, race isn't, I mean, you know, it's like 2017, like, is race relevant? I'm kidding. <laughs> I mean, is it even zeitgeisting? Is it trending? Is it Derek? I Derek-er? just took a sharp, deep breath. Um, <laughs> um, so speaking of George Takei, have you met him? No, I haven't. I don't even know if he knows I'm alive. That's what I mean. Like, I, I, I interviewed Ali Wong, the comedian, mm-hmm. and I was just like, have you been oh my 
by George Takei <laughs> because that is like the the sign that you I'm kind of made it. I'm hoping that yeah. the, the special will put me on his radar a little bit. I was I was like deeply sad that I didn't get a share after Conan. I was like, this is this is going to be my this moment. Is it, this is it, George yeah. Takei is going to put me on the fucking map. But maybe next time. Like back, like back. Maybe next time. Um, I mean, I. Yeah, I mean, like he's he's our our Beyonce and Oprah mixed into one. No, actually, that's not true. There's also Margaret Cho. Have you met Margaret Cho? I have met Margaret. Cho. I just opened for her in Seattle recently. Actually, shut the yeah. fuck up. I met her IRL. Um, I was doing a show and she came on as a guest, and I took all the selfies. I only got one, and it's terrible. So I couldn't even post it. I was oh, so, I got a really great so angle. Sad. Like, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so going back to your parents. What is your relationship with them like? Because you, they kicked you out after the journal mm. reading debacle. Yeah. So kicking out is like it's such a weird. That's such a weird situation. I I I hesitate to say full on kicked out. They sort of gave me an. My mom gave me an ultimatum of you can either live in this house and live a certain way or leave. And in my seventeen year old brain, I was like, "Fuck it, I'll leave." And so I left. So if we want to get down to the brass text, they didn't technically kick me out, but they sort of presented me with an impossible situation. Yeah, you were ousted. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I didn't. We didn't really talk for almost a full year after that. Um, oh, that's it, expensive. That's brutal. Is. Yeah, yeah. It it was wild. But honestly, I think it was a healthy thing for both of us. The distance, and I think. Um, th- them realizing that the control aspect wasn't going to be there anymore sort of reoriented how they related to me in a way. And now, and it, throughout college and as an adult, it's been good. I, I, I like, I truly, I, I have a deep unabiding love for my parents, like every child. And, but there is just holes, I think, in my relationship with them because, you know, we go home and we talk about, my life and you know how i'm doing and you know our siblings and stuff like that how but, often do you go home uh about once or twice a year probably. are you doing thanksgiving and christmas there? i haven't done thanksgiving or christmas yeah. in like a decade me neither that. but only because i'm training my parents not to expect me around <laughs> the, the worst traveling time i know that's honestly now that's more what it is mm. because it's not that i am like avoiding my parents by any means but i'm just not it's not a thing that isn't it's not a family holiday to me anymore so much. It's like a friend's holiday more so than it is a, a family holiday. And I just don't care to travel because it's just enough. I can see, I usually see them either like this year I'm going to Chicago in like the middle of November and I'll see them then. Mm. And that will be our, like that period of the year. And then I'll probably go home again sometime in the spring, which is what I usually do after that. But yeah, my sister has a, two babies now. So it's, that has honestly gotten me. There have been years where I've only been home once to see them. And, and and those years usually fell in the years when I was in Chicago, truly 40 minutes away from them. But, um, but now that my sister has these kids who I love, the kids thing is, is rough though, because I recently saw my family and mind you, um, I was raised strict Catholic and my mother is the type of woman who I don't want to call her parochial or provincially minded, but she thinks that hell is a place that you can geotag that you will physically go to if you do bad things. And this, so this is just like her baseline for everything. And so I lie to her flagrantly, but just in order to protect us both. And so my brother had a kid the kid is wonderful. The kid is magic. And so I like a men in men in black, like 
brain cleanse light. I thought that would fix anything. And I recently saw them and I love them to death. I love everyone. And this doesn't include my brother who I genuinely have a relationship with. But I was like, oh, I thought you were a different woman. Mm. And I was like, no, I love you dearly, but you remain an emotional terrorist from whom I have to protect myself. <laughs> and and ergo, we have a wonderful relationship. But kids are tricky because they can sort of like Stockholm syndrome you a little bit. My, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a load off me to see my parents being grandparents because. Oh, sure. And I had this moment, this is dark, but so my mom's, mom is my only living grandparent now and is in a nursing home near our house and is um just sort of in her final days she's had a couple of strokes and is sort of mentally there but not physically well and i we i went to visit her the last time i was home in february and i went with my mom and my sister and i was just sobbing the whole time not because i'm especially close to my grandmother i'm not she is true fire and brimstone Southern Baptist lady who uh, stopped sending me money after my mom told me, <laughs> told them I was gay. Whoa. So, you know, that's sort of the relation. I, I love her, but she, you know, I, and I think she's sort of fine now with me, but I was just crying the whole time because I was just looking at my mom being so, my mom's a nurse, so she's very good with my grandma and is very like chill about the whole situation about feeding my grandmother and like my, it was so hard for me, not because I, I am close to my grandmother, but because I genuinely was thinking about my mom being right. in that position. And I turned to my sister at one point when my mom and grandmother were out of the room and I was like, thank you in advance because this is going to be you. Like, it's not going to be me or Sam who's doing this, not because of out of any non-desire to do this, but I just know that my lifestyle, like sh my sister will live a mile away from my parents for that, the rest of her life. And she is the one who they'll want yeah. to do that yeah. for them. Yeah. I mean, and God forbid I, you know, move to LA and then convince them to move out there in, in some Why giant... would you build that? I don't, I don't what, know. But you, I, you say this as if it like Mike could, it could foregone conclusion. I mean, the, Chicago winters are hard. I yeah, worry about them. I want them, you know, in my carriage house behind my giant <laughs> LA mansion. You know, they all have some different zip code. <laughs> um, at what point did you realize you were funny? Oh, Jesus. I probably realized that in junior high, somewhere around there, um, I think it, this is a, like a stock answer, but it's just because it's true. I think you grow up um, with a certain set of insecurities about being different and and presenting as different. It was a really effeminate kid. I got called faggot more before the age of 15, I think, than any time afterwards, uh, while I was spending the most time in the church, mind you. Mm. Um, and I think my defense mechanism, like many gay kids, was just to sort of like put on a show, you right. know, and, and, and Swishy make clap fun backs, of myself. Yeah. And yeah, it was, well, it, I didn't have the confidence. I, I barely have the confidence to, to put that on now, but I just, it, I was always very referential. It was a lot of like knowing what movie to quote at the right time, which is so basic. But as a 13 year old boy, it really was a, a hit. Um, and, you know, I had, I, I, I actually don't know if I ever like consciously thought of myself as funny until probably college at some point. I mean, or and maybe then you were hilarious. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I never thought it was for me. I, 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 certainly didn't do any comedic anything in high school. I was very focused on being dramatic. And in college, I went 
you know, I was a, a theater major, a playwright and an actor. And I auditioned for the sketch group and the, the improv group two for two years and i never got even a callback for either so so fuck that yeah i know <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah so i always I, I think at a certain point it was like well i guess this just isn't for me and it was sort of like when i started writing plays that i started to get that affirmations because i would write these like really i mean just looking at them now i'm so embarrassed but like the, they all were very dark about like the first play i ever wrote was about a guy who has to spend, a, uh, who's like trapped in a city because of snow and he goes to his ex-girlfriend's sister's house to stay during this layover and his girlfriend and this and her sister had committed suicide. And so they like Jesus. deal with the suicide in this snowy night in Chicago. And it was a really, really funny play at the same time. And that is like, I remember people like laughing whilst through tears. And that was a really like gratifying moment for me in college. And I was like, yeah, fuck yeah, this is what I'm going to do. So, yeah, and then the next play I wrote was about uh, pedophilia and sex addiction. As one does. As, as a, any 20-year-old is equipped to right, write about right. yeah, uh, totally. pedophilia and sex addiction. And then the my senior like play thesis was about um, open relationships. <laughs> in like oh like and and monogamy and the nature of monogamy and all three of those plays were really really had a lot of like sort of acerbic dry you know witty moments and i and it, it's the same sensibility that i've carried over i think into my writing today you know in the scripts that i wrote and the show hopefully will have a lot of that dna because it is again sort of a dark premise of a boy getting kicked out of his house and being right. alone and hijinks ensue hijinks ensue yeah. wait so like how does all your playwriting sort of inform like sitcom writing, like in terms of like the mechanics or the thinking or like anything. Well, I'm a big, um, my, br the way my brain works and the way my brain learns is by finding a structure and the, everything has a structure, a stand up, um, like teleplays everything and if i what all i did when i started writing plays and when i started writing this pilot that is was like technically my first teleplay was i just found a play and and read the structure okay four acts that's easy and then just sort of went from there and once you find the structure of what you need to do even in stand-up of just like okay you've got the setup and then you've got the punchline it's just like finding those little um patterns and structures is all um all my brain wants to do. And I find writing play, uh, writing scripts specifically. So, um, it's like a math equation. I know, I know it's so, uh, you know, expected that I'd say that, but it is, it's like writing a good play is like, or a script of any kind is like a good math equation of just like figuring it out. And that's, I mean, how, that's how I learned how to act too. I mean, when you go to acting school, it is about breaking it down and making it a structure or a theory, a, you know, a, for, a formula almost. And, I found that very sexy. <laughs> <laughs> it's soothing, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it's about like finding a cadence, a rhythm, mm -hmm. because human beings ultimately also are very responsive to that. It's why we like a pop song. It's like why we like a hook. Mm -hmm. It's why like Drake is even a thing. Yeah. Um, so in terms of like a play called Kate and Sam are not breaking oh, yeah. up. Um, it's about a famous couple from a movie franchise who do break up during its run, who then gets kidnapped by mm -hmm. like a super stan yeah so 
how did that come about? And also, like, what happens when you write a play and it gets shown? I even saw, like, on the website that you can, like, purchase it from Chicago Drama Awards. It. It's, per- it's been performed in, I think, three states in the U.S. and then Canada as well. Oh, and wow. So I, how much do you buy it for? How does that entire thing work? Um, you can buy the script itself for, like, eight bucks, I think, on Amazon. But you can... Once you, if you want to perform it, I think then it gets into like licensing, and that is something that um, I don't actually know too much about. Who handles that? Well, the theater company that I originally wrote it with uh, and for, uh, they handle all the licensing for it because it's like a goofy sort of contract that TBH, I think I was young and probably shouldn't have signed. But that being said, uh, yeah, you can. Um, it was a collaboration with this specific theater company and that's that. And the way that play came about was I, my still one of my dear, dear friends, Sarah Gittenstein, uh, who's a brilliant theater director in Chicago and a brilliant actress actually too. And she, um, she and I wanted to work together. I wanted to write something for her direct. And I remember reading the news on Facebook that Will Arnett and Amy Poehler (gasps) were getting a divorce. Yes. And I just texted her and I said, what if we kidnapped Amy Poehler and Will Arnett and made them get back together? And then like a beat later, I was like, that's our play. And then, and (laughs) then it sort of morphed actually into more of a Kristen Stewart, Robert Pattinson, Mm. um, thing because I was more attracted to having them be younger and also because I watched that video it's a British girl it's basically her leave Britney alone video but about uh, Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson breaking up and that and I felt like they had more like of a rabid fan base to sort of pull from and and not mock but sort of you know i mean twihards are serious i remember i went to comic-con okay first of all that sentence but uh, the, the first year that twilight was coming out and people i was in the line for hall h like any self-respecting old person and it had wrapped around everything it was like multiple multiple blocks long and obviously that's the norm now but back then it was like very much a thing and Comic-Con was angry that, like, Twihards were descended upon, like, Locust, whatever. But people were getting run over by cars. Oh, my like, God. Like, trying to, not even, like, trying to get in or meet him, just to queue up <laughs> in this line. And I was just like, wow, this is very, very serious. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, like, fecund soil for mining. Yeah. I I was really proud of that play. I was really proud specifically of the fake YA novel slash movie verse that we created for the play, which was, like... Actually, can't remember what the title of it was, but it was about ghost hunters. And one of the, I believe, the Robert Pattinson character is like a ghost hunter, and the Kristen Stewart character played a ghost, <laughs> and they're a, forbidden love. That's amazing. So, I mean, that also needs to exist. I actually mark. probably yeah. should write. That. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I should definitely that. write that. Um, so when you say that, like, writing a play is kind of like mathematic, and it's like an algorithm, like. How though? Yeah. Like well, that, that the, stumps me. Like I've tried to write so many different things and I'm not just like mining your brain to like help my career. Well, but, when like, you learn, uh, when you go to theater school, you learn play analysis and it's all about, okay, so you have stasis. This is the world as it exists. And then there is an inciting incident, something that fucks up the world. Okay. You know that. And then there's rising actions that lead all the way up to a climax, which the inciting incident introduces a dramatic question. So the dramatic question of Kate and Sam are breaking up would be, uh, will they get back together or will they die? And then the rising action sort of leads up to that climax of that answers that question that's asked by the inciting incident. And then you have a denouement that sort of establishes a new climate, uh, a new stasis, a new sort of world that is in 
not not being disturbed. And that is the driving force behind everything that I write, even a half hour comedy. Everything has to have that. Otherwise, it's sort of like, what's the point? So I feel like I saw your pupils dilate as you just <laughs> recited. <laughs> it's, it makes me so hard. It really does. Like talking about it and like, look, I just saw a fucking play in New York with a couple of buddies, a Carrie Coon play called Mary Jane. And we and they were theater school nerds, too. And we just like walking out of that play talking of like, what was the stasis? What was the incentive? Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, we are going never having sex again. Um, but. I, I fucking love it. It was the, the thing that I fell in love with in theater school. And it's also like they teach that aspect of it in acting classes, too. And whilst I was learning how to act and learning how to like diagram a scene, basically, is what they teach you how to do in acting class, which is uh, essentially the wax on wax off moment in the karate kid. Cause you're like, why the fuck am I writing on this script? Like little like lines and diagramming and things like that. Cause you don't get why this has anything to do with acting. But I was so fascinated by that. And I was like, yeah, I want to know beat by for beat, like what someone's objective is, what they want in this. And so knowing that and approaching writing from like an actor's brain too is really helpful in writing no i can imagine like i never actually thought about that like you know people get so sort of like the writer is sovereign Mm. but like knowing all that seems hella helpful yeah i i get really uh i think like who is it now that david mam edward alby all these guys who are like you can't do the play anyway except for the way that i wrote it is so annoying to me because i actually don't believe that author intent matters all that much at the end of the day like it's sort of oh, like once uh, you've written shots it, send, fired. send it out into the world and if some college kid <laughs> wants to do an all black version of of who's afraid of virginia wolf then let him you know i just don't care at the end of the day and that i know somebody could be, do some atrocious alt-right version of my play <laughs> I, would have to I, would, that'd be I don't know how they do that though. i truly don't know like what terrible dis, you know directorial that, decisions I, they'd have to make but that would be also like the meta reverb it'd be like irony irony <laughs> <laughs> like irony yeah um satire irony i have no idea so jack's media are making birthright yeah. um they're the people behind broad city amy schumer samantha b difficult people um basically all the dope new york shows yeah. that aren't like as view pretty much yeah (laughs) um what is working with them why is working with them cool specifically because they are a specific type of company um so i working with them has been an absolute dream and i feel so lucky that i got that my first tv project is with them because i work primarily so tony hernandez is who started the company and he's behind louis that was his first like exec thing he executive produced and they're they're really great about taking creators who are sort of existing properties amongst themselves like me schumer uh louis ck jim gaffigan you know um julie and billy and and sort of like working with them to create the show that when whatever show they want to do, and uh, so Tony is great. I love Tony. Um, his wife, uh, Lily Burns, is the creative exec that I've been working the most closely with. And she's like the head of development there, yeah. and it's a privately held company, mm-hmm. which is interesting too. Yeah, and she's a genius. Uh, she's <sighs> just she's so smart and she's so funny, and she also directed the pilot that we shot of the script that I wrote and um, she's just so good. She's, she's really sharp. She knows how to communicate with me. She knows how to get me to write better. And the notes that she gives me are ruthless and always so 
makes everything so much better. And she's just a no bullshit sort of woman. And I really appreciate that because, you know, this process has been hell for me. Um, and I will, uh, I am the type of sensitive person that will send out a sort of clarion call of passive aggression and ask people <laughs> to comfort me without asking them to comfort me. And uh, there have been several moments throughout this process where I've done that to Lily and she just won't play ball. She won't do it. And then two days later, I'll like come to my senses and come back in and be like, oh, you know, you're actually right. And and then sort of it forces me to be an adult about certain situations in this process that I otherwise if if I found if I was partnered with someone who indulged those parts of my personality, I would be just a disaster all the time. And she's just she's not into being my therapist, which is what I say about her. And it's so much better because of that. Like she I have I have people in my life who can do that. And she's like, I'm not here to comfort you. And yet, you know, I know she cares deeply about the project and she just gets it. Well, also, I mean, it sounds like there is a alarming slash startling slash bracing lack of like head ass fuck shit over there where like if you come under budget all that money goes straight back into your production mm-hmm. plus um i just read an article on them and tony's quoted as saying our selling point to a network is give me the talent and the price point you're willing to spend and we'll customize the show so that it works for the talent and their voice to the talent we say what's the story you want to tell and we'll figure out for the budget you have so there's just like not that much superfluous shit no. going on, no. which and never happens in television. No, it's so funny because I, well, I, I can't say this. Uh, there Dude, is wait, there's no, <laughs> there's a lot of of dick sucking that goes on. Yeah, you have to set s all the d's production and and from the from their side of things that I've dealt with a lot in other projects that I've worked on, of just like you're doing so good, you're doing so good. This is brilliant. This is the best thing that we've ever worked on and like that sort of thing, which is, you know, I know that that's part of the job and they're being they're attempting to be helpful, but it is just nice to be comforted and knowing that there's no bullshit with them. It's all they're all always straightforward. They're always upfront. They're always um, sort of not selling me the fucking sky um, with this show while also being 100% behind it and just knowing. I mean, they put up their own money to film a pilot before we even pitched it, which is, doesn't happen in this industry. Like, you know, it's rare that people will even take out this. I mean, I had the script as like a, a sample that I was using to try and get writing jobs on other shows. And Jax was like, no, we'll take the script and we'll sell it as is and we'll That's film crazy. it. crazy. And other companies were sort of interested in the story idea. And they're like, we won't use the script that you wrote. Like, we can't bring this to a network. We sort of have to like present it as an idea that has not been as fully formed as you've made it. Because and I get that. I get that idea because in their brains, it's like, you know, most networks want to have a sense of ownership about the creative product that they're they're entering into so if you present like a fully formed script and a fully formed etc etc they'll be like well this is already done and this is different than what we would have done so we don't want to do it but Jax is like no you've already got this let's film this so to prove that you can act and that you can you know do all these other things and we'll put you know a million dollars behind this and then because we believe in you and that's the thing is like it's not it's not it's not word dick sucking you know it's not like oh you know we think you're so great we think you're so great and then sort of just like leaving me hanging for months and months and months it was like we want to do this show let's do it we'll put our own money up and then you have the transparency in in which you can learn yeah 
Because you'll see what doesn't work if they're actually being that honest with mm-hmm. you. Yeah. And and that's the thing is that I, <laughs> I've i learned so much. And my, my representation, too, with this project, of course, and this is, again, their job, but they're always sort of like, well, if this falls through, you've got A, B, and C sort of on the back burner. All these people are interested in working with you. And for me, it's like, it's so nerdy, but I'm just like, I don't want to just make a television show. I want to make a television show with Lily and Tony because they are so brilliant. Yeah, no, I'm completely spoiled by them because I just don't think there's anyone smarter um, in the biz right now. And I think that's sort of, you can see that in all the shows. Yeah. So they didn't spoil you so much as ruin you. Yeah, they ruined me for every single other person. And so are you making the show that you want to make? I am. Yeah, I really do. That's I really wild. think I am. And I really hope that it gets picked up. Me too. So why move to New York? Because I knew uh, that I wanted to do this full time. I wanted to make comedy and I wanted to do stand up and I wanted to make television. And um, Chicago is a beautiful, amazing place to make art, but it is not a uh, an easy place to make money. <laughs> so mm. I think at the end of the day, I wanted, uh, to do that. I wanted to make a living at this. And I remember I came out here, I'd been coming out here for a couple of years to do shows here and there for like a week at a time. And I came out here at one point and talked to this wonderful booker at, um, she books, uh, night train with white snack. Marianne ways is her name. And she's about that show's ending. And she's about to uh, now working with Joe Firestone and an apartment and Sherla and Maeve Higgins to do it a replacement show. But um, I did her show and she basically was like, hey, you're really you're good at this. You're not, uh, you know, a legend at this yet. <laughs> she, but she's like, what exactly are you waiting for? She's like, if you're waiting for some arbitrary milestone, then don't because there's just no point to it because you all have to hit reset here anyways. And the only thing, the only prerequisite that you should have before moving to New York or LA is just being good at whatever the thing that you want to do is. And she said, you're proficient. So you should just move because, and, and I had a million people in in Chicago telling me, no, you know, you got to do this show or you got to wait until you've, you know, hit this milestone. Or this, what that, are or some the of the sort, of sort of false premises or, I think, uh, you know, there's a show called Comedians You Should Know in Chicago, which is a wildly successful show in Chicago. You can barely get tickets to see it. Um, and I think oh, that was like a, a, uh, an arbitrary milestone that I'd heard bandied about of you mm. have to do that show. You know, I'm not I'm not going to move until I do that show is sort of at one point in my brain. A lot of people sort of said, you know, you should do more road work. You know, you've only it's one thing to do comedy in Chicago and New York. But, you know, it's another to be doing these clubs sort of uh, in and around the Midwest and, and wait until somebody decides to take you out on the road to feature for them before you move to New York. You should be getting uh, in these festivals and meeting people in New York. You don't have a support system in New York. Like you should know all these comics in New York before you move, et cetera, et cetera. And for me, I mean, it it was the best decision I ever made to move, quote unquote, too soon because – we all, I moved with a bunch of Chicago comics and we all had to start over, you know? And in- that is like the most sort of valuable and true and kind of crucial advice anyone can give you to sort of incite that inflection yeah. point. That is like, 
I hope she tells everyone this. I hope so. And I've started to pass it on to people that I meet on the road. You know, I meet young comics all the time who are sort of like, oh, you know, I'm going to stay another two years in Sacramento, then I'm going to spend three years in Portland, and then I'll decide to move to either LA or New York. And I'm like, I think you can cut some of this out quite on. I don't tell every comic I meet on the road this because some of them are bad. But if I see someone who sort of has the fundamentals down and is sort of all they need is stage time, I say, just go, just come. If, if money is not holding you back, if there's nothing holding you back from moving to New York, then just come because it is the best place to get good at stand-up comedy because you will be, you can go up three times in a night. You will be miserable for the first year or two years, yeah. but you're going to be miserable for the first year or two years if you wait three years in Portland too. You know, it's never going to not feel bad for a while and you might as well get that out of the way while you're still young and vibrant and learning and strong back. Yeah. No, that's, that's really, really important. Um, so you're actually performing tonight. Yes, I am. How often do you perform? Um, uh, nowadays it is probably like roughly once a night on average. And I, once a night, wait, once a week or once a night. Oh, you Um, perform every night. Yeah. Huh? I mean, there are nights certainly where I don't have any shows and then there are nights where I have two or three shows. So it all averages out to about like seven shows a week. Why? Um, Well, for one, I don't go to open mics as much as I should anymore. And so I need to work on new material. And the best place for me to do that right now is some of these bar shows that um, I'll get booked on because there's a there's just a million shows in New York. They're not all sold out, packed to the door, super cool. Like a lot of them are very modest, like fun bar shows where half the people in the audience didn't even know a show was going to happen. And that's still that's sort of the most that's the best place to work out new material in a lot of ways because they're not primed to laugh at these jokes. They sort of you have to get them by virtue of the strength of the joke telling and the strength of performance because. I could work out new material in front of audiences that are there to see me. And that's cheating though, because everybody is so primed. They want to laugh at you. You know, like if I did a show that I'm headlining and worked out material there, it would just, it's not a real indication of how well that material is going to work in that the future. That is terrifying. That's like a one man flash mob. <laughs> like why? It, oh my God. I mean, it's so funny. It's so weird to be telling this like it's such a normal thing because it has become such a normal aspect of my life. Just, we call them ambush shows uh, of just springing a show on people who are trying to enjoy their night at a bar. And I've definitely like been in slam poetryed ambush oh, wow. style but that like this is like a lateral move maybe well no <laughs> i mean it's because like anyone's apt to like spit 16 at you yeah. in any given <laughs> moment but like that is wild i had no idea that this was a thing it's like mm-hmm. almost like i don't do cocaine and so i'm constantly surprised if i'm with someone who does cocaine and they point out all the people doing co- i'm like oh it's like the matrix i had no idea it's like a, you know like a seeing eye like a magic eye poster or whatever but yeah. so this is just something that y'all do yeah um, huh. uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's all over Brooklyn and New York. I mean, it's sometimes it's clubs and most of the time it's bars though. So. And so, so this is like going to the gym. So, yeah. Oh, it's exactly like that. You got to get your reps in. Yeah, man. That's a lot of reps. So will you always consider yourself a comic first and foremost? I think so. mark? Really? Why? Oh, well, it's hard for me to orient my, like, it's hard for me to imagine anything else right now. I mean, anything 
could happen in the next four to five years. If the sh- uh, you know, say the show gets picked up, it's a huge hit. I'm you know suddenly rich, yeah. rich and oh, I do a Kristen wig, and you know, I I I I do you know want would love to have like a fun meaty indie drama comedy role that you know, and then I win an Oscar, and then you know it's sh- it is insane for me to imagine Amy Schumer's life because. Six years ago, Amy Schumer was living what my life currently, probably still doing shows at night and uh, all over New York. And you no, know, and now she can't leave so the house. Big, she has yeah, totally. like she just brought Madonna up at the cellar. Casual. You know, her friend Madonna. <laughs> so it's hard for but it, it's hard for me to conceptualize that. I can't imagine that for myself. I think for the secret to work, you have to be able to though. I'm not sure I want that though. I'm not sure I want to be Schumer level famous. I would love to be. Alana um, or Abby famous, maybe just sort of like a casual, successful show. Yeah, people still want you to win really big. Yeah, Yeah. I. But I will always want to be doing stand up. I think. Um, I don't think there might be until there comes a day when I think I'm no longer sort of have a relevant point of view. I think I'll want to be doing stand up. So. You know, in terms of like what you were saying about like you're never going to be ready, so just go and then start from the beginning and do all the things. Um, does that advice apply to first even getting up on stage? Yeah, I think so. When when did you do it? And like what I guess what were you like? Okay, this is it, and then you did it. I well, and th- this is also hard for me to explain to someone else because I I was coming from a performance background oh, and sure, a writing background, so it was like it wasn't like a huge leap for me. You right. know, it. W- um, I did stand up for the first time at a variety show at an after dark performance of this play in Chicago. And so the theater company I was working with at the time put on this variety show and needed an extra act. And they had improv and sketch and things like that. And so they're like, oh, Joel, we've heard you, you know, gesture at the idea of doing comedy. Would you like to do something like like stand up? And I said, sure. And I did six minutes, I think, um, at this variety show as a packed, friendly crowd. Um, and I did well. And so I think had I not done well, I probably would have given up immediately. But, <laughs> Sake. Yeah. yeah totally. um, but did you have that six minutes prepared? Did you have like any, lead time I remember into it? spending the day, like the maybe day or two before writing out little bits, um, that I thought might be funny. And, and, and honestly, I started from things that I had said or explained in conversation that had made people laugh and just sort of regurgitated that on stage, which is, uh, to be quite honest, how I write jokes okay. to this day. Well, actually, I um, made the anthropologically specific and questionable um, decision to date a comic for a while. Oof. And I had no idea, actually, that you guys largely do know verbatim what you're going to say when you get up on stage. Yeah. I... Uh, yeah i do it is i am very loose and very improvisational in in certain aspects of the bits but for the most part they are all the same i like to pull i like to involve the audience a lot in certain things crowd work you call it question and answers and and call and response yeah yeah. call and response that sort of thing so i guess like that's the part you're actually workshopping like or what are you actually sort of working out well, I don't really like to write out jokes verbatim. I don't like okay. to write out like a script of like the exact words I Is will use unusual? for a joke. Uh, I don't know. Everybody does it a little bit different. I know some people do write out sort of verbatim what they want to say, but I prefer to sort of and and 
you know, I'm not a one line comic. I, I have sort I'm of. I'm not like, one of these one this, like. Yeah. This happening. I'm not somebody who can just go up on stage and read my tweet verbatim, but my tweets are sort of often oftentimes like the starting points the premises of these longer bits and so i'll start from something that is like a tweet which i think oh what's like a good example of that recently oh a recent example of that is talking about gay guys who sort of say like oh the only thing that makes me gay is i like to sleep with men and i spoke to a guy who said that and i was like that's weird the lamest part about being gay is sleeping with men. And I had tweeted that out and I sort of, I said that on stage and I, I sort of just like uh, work it out and talk it out of, and moving from there of like different aspects of it. And it's honestly, it's lazy and it's a cut because it's a conversation. I don't do this when I'm, you know, in front of a paying crowd who's there to see me. But if I'm at a bar show, I will just sort of have a conversation with the audience and see what lands and what doesn't land. And that is a weeks long process of sort of, you know, okay, so this, this always hits, this always gets a laugh, this sentence. So I'll keep that. And then this aspect, I need to maybe figure out a a better word to use in this line, because this is not getting the point across, or it's not hitting hard enough, or it needs to be more absurd, or it needs to be less absurd, or something like that to make it hit. And then eventually, I sort of cobble together an actual finished, you know, two to three minute joke that I will then hopefully use on television someday. Wow. So it is like a really sort of collaborative system. Yeah. Well, and it's hard because like different audiences will laugh at different things and you have to find the thing that works has the biggest success rate. Sure. Because you're also taking averages at that mm-hmm, point. Mm-hmm. So what is actually just... Again, math. Ah! <laughs> it all comes back. Math. Um, what is the hardest part about being a comedian? Oh, I, uh, I think it's the uncertainty of the whole thing of never knowing like where any of this is going if any of this is it's it's so fleeting all of it you know it's like a high that you get if you get a good laugh and then you leave stage and then you're depressed for the rest of the day and you don't know why and it's because it's that's gone and it's something you can't really hold in your hands for very long and it's something that you need constantly to re-up on that sort of gratification that you're getting from an audience and it all just feels very um uh i said fleeting already but it it just feels impermanent in a way that is uncomfortable for someone like me i love that you're hugging yourself you're like physically (laughs) manifesting that that loneliness and like yeah it's and it just feels sometimes it feels like what am i doing like there are people out there like curing cancer bethany frankel just chartered four private planes to deliver goods to puerto rico like what the fuck am i doing getting on stage talking about talking to horses you know it's just it sometimes feels worthless in a way that I wish I were doing something a little bit more meaningful, but I think bringing joy to people's yes, lives exactly. is important um, in these dark times. I have a question. So how do you find yourself being on because you're a comedian and does that get emotionally just taxing? Yeah, I, I think, um, I am much more introverted than people expect me to be. Or probably allow you to be also. Allow, yeah. yeah. I When I'm with a group of friends that I'm comfortable with, I'm gregarious and I'm, you know, I am sp- having fun and, and throwing out lines that may eventually make it into my stand-up set. But when I meet somebody for the first time, I am not as like, you know, 
jazzy as I, I I am on stage. It's so funny. I did this big festival in Montreal where a lot of industry people are at, and I I got off stage and I went to this after party, and all these people came up to me and were talking to me, and I was just sort of like like being like, oh, thank you so much. That was really nice of you to say about my set. I'm yeah yeah I'm staying over there. And after like five minutes of speaking to this woman, she said to me, she was like, wow, you're so different off stage. <gasps> <laughs> and then the implication is you're like yeah, I'm worse, I'm right? You're saying I'm worse. Yeah, yeah totally. I'm sorry. I wasn't as exciting as you wanted me to be. I'm sorry. I'm not like, you know, throwing out lines and, and running bits with you and making you laugh. But it, I just, and I also, I am a non, I am a, such a socially non-competitive person that if there's someone else in the room who clearly needs the attention, I am so happy to give that to them. And I'm just not willing to play any sort of game. Or jockey for position. Yeah. I just, yeah. Don't, I just don't need that. I am such a, uh, a, like a B personality in that way. I think I, it's pronounced fulfilled. <laughs> <laughs> like I just, I'm not, I, I don't care to do it. And I think sometimes I, I sense the, um, the, the gap that needs to be filled. If there is not that personality in the room, I will step up forward and regale the, the room with a, a fun story about something that happened to me related to what, whatever we were talking about. But I don't, I am, I think I'm just like so self-conscious about talking too much or, anything so I, I try to be like very aware i am it's a curse being so right. empathetic and i'm <laughs> you being gale. such an empath yeah um, totally um so question so speaking of empath how do you decide what you will and won't talk about in terms of like how cannibalistic you might be to other stories or hmm. other people's lives i am aware i'm like constantly aware of of it's so cliche, but I am very aware of like the punching up, punching down mm. sort of dynamic. Uh, here, here's a good example of an adjustment I recently made to a joke. I talk about sleeping with a Trump voter the night after the election. And that man is a villain in my brain for many reasons that you might hear if you ever hear that joke. And at the end of it, I talk about how bad he is at giving head. And at one example I use this, I was like, he gave head like he had adult braces, but he didn't have adult braces. And I and in that line always gets a laugh. It's barely a joke. It's not something that I deeply care about. It is the sensation that I felt. <laughs> right, right. And I right. remember it was like a true thing that I felt. Experience, yeah. And then I did this show and this very nice man came up to me and he was after the show and he was like, I'm such a big fan. I love your comedy. And he wasn't being aggressive about it, but he was like, opened his mouth. He did have adult braces. <gasps> And he was like, but he's like, I didn't appreciate that joke. And he was being jokey about it, but I could tell he was, was like a hurt, little hurt. Yeah. And I burst into tears. <laughs> I felt so bad. And I was just like, oh, God, this is why I can't I can't be a comedian. <laughs> just, right, 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 right. I, I was like, this is such a it wasn't. And it was like I might feel differently if it was like, you know, integral to the joke. But I just felt so bad. And I was like, it's just not important. And now instead of that, I say like something about like, if it felt like you had a, a third row of teeth, which I actually think is a stronger joke. It's a funnier it's image. It's visual, yeah. And, peop and I still get the same amount of laughter. Hit, the hit rate is the same average. So I'm happy to have done that. And I think some people, there are comedians in this industry and in this community that would sort of side-eye me for that, for acquiescing to somebody who wasn't even asking me to remove the joke. He, he truly did seem to have like generally a pretty good sense of humor about it. I could tell that there was a little bit of hurt a underneath. Cast, yeah. But I, 
he was he the 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 conversation was bookended by like I love your comedy though I'm a bit really big fan and I wonder I often I actually wonder if he had if he had come at me aggressively and been he like would have been how like, dare you fuck I you, probably yeah. yeah I probably would have been like fuck you I'm gonna do this fuck joke me, forever fuck now you. yeah totally yeah. Um, Gwen Stefani did not make adult braces cool yeah. <laughs> like, I, I I do think about like and there's a there is an aspect like I would never say that on television if that joke got on television like there's going back to my half hour there are certain jokes that I asked them not to air not because I think that they are problematic capital P but because there is a, there is a difference if i'm in a room with an audience i can, can sort of control the context of a joke in a way that i did not feel comfortable having to try and explain it outside that context and sure. i know that sounds like a cop out but there are just like certain things that i am pushing a boundary maybe and i once it leaves the room though it's out of your control like there are jokes that i do that sometimes get a groan or an <gasps> You know, first, and then I can play with that and I can say, why are we reacting this way? And sort of craft a fun, you know, inter exchange from that and piggyback off that, that maybe makes sure that everyone is leaving feeling okay, or maybe not even okay, but just sort of understanding my point of view on whatever subject we're talking about. And once it goes on television, you lose that control completely. And I just don't. I'm not at a place in my career where I want to deal with that right now. Oh, that's fair. So. Also really interesting in terms of how malleable and sort of intuitive and how sort of organic that process yeah. is. That's, that's why I never want to stop doing stand-up because it's immediate. It's it's the immediacy of theater. Right. You know? Yeah, that yeah I, totally. I love. So. so in terms of next things that you're excited about, the Comedy Central special is obviously a big deal, but you, your album. Yeah, the album is coming out two weeks after that. Okay, what can we expect? Um, I think it is me sort of presenting all of these. We talked a lot about identity, and I think my set is sort of rooted a lot in identity, but it is me sort of letting go of that. And then you, I think there's also a lot of just sillier, more absurd, like things that are not tethered to my identity in any sort of way, which I'm really excited about and is sort of how my set is sort of now evolving. Now that I've burned an hour of material after the album, I'm sort of rebuilding from scratch now. And I am sort of, um, I think I've talked to my, uh, I've, think i've talked about my identity so in so many from so many attacked it from every angle i'm not not talking about my identity anymore but the jokes that i am developing now are much different i think they're coming from a different place so from the album i think you get sort of uh, a full arc narrative of my life and uh, how i feel about being gay and how i feel about being asian and how i feel about being those two things together and adoption and et cetera, et cetera. and um and it feels complete to me in a way. Mm. It sort of feels like I've circled the loop. I mean, I will always, those things will always be sort of the backdrop by, uh, behind all of the jokes that I do, whether it's talking about I talking mean, to horses. I mean, it's still or, your operating system and you're still yeah, the one looking out of it's your eyeballs. The context, I, I feel like it's like a good primer for the stuff that's coming now of just sort of the backdrop, the context of from which when I'm talking about all horses being 9-11 truthers, you know it's coming from the, the point of view of a man who is gay and Asian and adopted. So that <gasps> colors everything. Yeah, you know? totally. So, um... Final question. Do you presently have kimchi in your fridge? I do. Oh, okay. <laughs> I have two kinds of kimchi, actually. What kind? I have um, regular good old-fashioned kimchi, and then I have, like, goofy um, Brussels sprout kimchi, which is not good. Yeah, that's not kosher. It's like... 
trafe, 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 trafe. It's like some like farm to table bullshit that was in like some uh, like knockoff Whole Foods thing, and I hated it. Was it seven dollars or was it eleven dollars? It was closer to eight dollars. Okay, so, fair enough. Um, but by prices right rules, the seven dollars wins. Okay, cool. Well, thank you so thank so much. You so I've been much. excited to talk to you. For I so feel long. smarter just talking to you. Uh, honestly, I likewise. Feel... I I feel like I feel like comedians get a bad rap in terms of like. It's like DJing. People are like, ugh, I already know everything there is to know about it, and I hate it. You know what I mean? But yeah. there's so much. I'm glad that I have taught the children <laughs> today, uh, and hopefully they don't come away feeling even worse about comedy than they did before. No, it's wonderful. Thank but you so much. please don't date yeah. a comedian. No, yeah. Never, no, never. No. Not me, not anybody. You would never date a comedian. Um, I am lucky that I don't have a dearth of comedians to choose from. There's maybe one or two that I would date, but... Uh, I think it would be difficult yeah, for me. I think be. I want like a librarian or a architect. scientist or an architect. A rom- yeah, like a, give me a good old fashioned rom com job. Yeah, 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 totally. Perfect. That's well, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I'm in love with my life. Hey Cool Job is recorded at Red Bull Arts New York. Special thanks to Hassan Insane, Joseph Hazen, Max Wolf, and the song you hear is I'm in Love with My Life by Phases. <laughs>